to Judges chapter 20 and 21. Uh, We are finishing the book of Judges today. I know that brings great sadness for some and great joy for others, Uh, but we are finishing today. um, And as we uh, looked at Judges 19 last week, I said that uh, 19 through 21 is really one big sermon. So uh, we're going to go ahead and put up the entire outline right now. Uh, You can go ahead and write it down. So you can go ahead and put up the whole outline. There it is. So we looked at chapter 19 last week, the depravity and guilt in Benjamin. Uh, And then 20 and 21 uh, is what I'm going to do today. And each chapter is kind of its own section on the big picture, which is the new Sodom, the chaos and morality that's going on in the book of Judges. And as we've said, The book of Judges, of course, is about a series of 12 different deliverer judges that come and deliver Israel. Uh, Each judge progressively is worse than the the original or the first one. And uh, the the story of the book of Judges is how Israel itself gets worse and worse as you go through. And as we get to the end of chapter 16, we finish that last judge. And so chapters 17 through 21, the last five chapters, don't even have any more judges. It's kind of the epilogue or the end or what happens to Israel after. And we see 17 at chapter 17 and 18 is how Israel gets chaos in their worship. And then 19 through 21 shows us how Israel has chaos in their morality. And so last week, we looked at uh, the first part is their depravity and guilt in Benjamin. We looked at that last week. We won't uh, spend much more time on it. They're just in chapter 20 is a, a recap of what happens in chapter 19 in the first part of 20. Uh, and it's, it's really not even totally true. The guy that tells the story is the Levite who did it. And so he, of course, doesn't tell the truth completely. And then in this week, we'll look at chapter 20 and 21 together. And you can see all that. So uh, here's the plan going forward is we're going to finish the book of Judges today. Next week, we're going to have Stephen Splawn come. Uh, he'll, he'll preach next week, December 2nd. By the way, uh, for all you second uh, service attenders, if you come early next week, uh, we have free lattes in the, the, wor- in the um, lobby. So from 845 to 915, latte Sunday, we're going to do that periodically. Uh, and that'll be <clears throat> next week. Specialty coffee, whatever you want to call it. It'll be some really cool stuff. Uh, we'll have hangout from 845 till 915. And then uh, service at, at 930. So uh, we're excited about that. After that, uh, after next week, after Stephen preaches, we'll go into our Christmas series. Uh, and that'll go, uh, of course, through Christmas. And then after that, the last week in December and the first few weeks in January, I'll do some type of series, probably on spiritual disciplines or something. And then after that, uh, when we kind of the end of January into February, we'll do the book of Ruth. Um, and so we thought it'd be nice to have the book of Ruth somewhere close, or at least I thought, somewhere close to Valentine's Day since it's a story of a lot of things, but certainly is uh, a story of love as well. Um, and so, uh, and also we're, we're doing the book of Ruth with the book of Judges because uh, Ruth takes t- place in the time of the Judges. So uh, that's the plan going forward at least through February. So um, I'm going to pray and we will uh, begin. If you're still writing, it's okay to stop. And, and then as, as I pray, uh, after I finish, you can write again. You don't have to write during the prayer, even though you really want it down. Everybody's going to know that you're writing and think that you don't like prayer. So uh, I'm going to pray. And then, then you can go back to writing. It's not going to go anywhere, I promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace and your love given to us in Christ. We pray for this 
time as we look at your word that you would come now and be with us as we look at these particular chapters. And though they're just um, difficult, um, much like last week, but not quite as difficult as last week, uh, we do believe your scriptures that say that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for uh, rebuke, correction, reproof, training in righteousness. And we know that these scriptures do that and ultimately point us to Jesus. And so come now, Holy Spirit, teach us and point our hearts and minds to hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, the point of all this, of chapters 19 through 21, which I have up there at the very bottom, is without following Jesus, without following Jesus, the people of God will do what's right in their own eyes and will be morally bankrupt. Uh, I'm going to sit. I'm going to try sitting. I know I don't ever do that, but Black and Blue Football Friday made my knee feel weird, and like it's starting to hurt some. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a seat. I'm going to try this out. I know it's not normal. So uh, anyway, um, I'm getting old. That's what's happening. I was the oldest one out there and didn't run circles around him. Anyway, uh, so we saw last week the depravity of the guilt of Benjamin. Now, in chapter 20, the first little section, uh, basically kind of one through seven, there's a recap of 19. But the Levite tells the story, and so when he tells the story, he, he does it, you know, making himself look good. Uh, and then we go into, af- uh, after that, where we see how these people of, Je- these people of God, the, the followers of, of God, Israel, when I say followers, we can, we can air quote that, uh, how... Without having a king present, which is what the writer wants us to know in chapter 21, the last verse, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Without having a king present, then they just do what's right in their own eyes. And when they do what's right in their own eyes, because we're all uh, sinful humans that don't have a moral compass outside of Jesus, it always turns morally bankrupt. And so... Um, in verse 20, we see uh, what happens. Now, remember, last week uh, was the horrific thing done to uh, the lady. And then in verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 20, it says, All the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That's like from Florida to Maine. Everywhere, all over Israel. So what we see here is an amazing uh, bit of unif- unity happening in Israel. Uh, they all come together, which is it's rather amazing. It's impressive. But not only is it impressive, it's tragic uh, because they could never get themselves all together throughout the entire book of Judges. And here at the end, they're finally able to unify around this particular thing. Uh, But it's tragic because if they had just unified earlier when God was telling them to fight the oppressors, then they would have actually fought the oppressors and won. And so it's impressive that they all unify, but tragic because instead of fighting oppressors, they unify, but they're fighting themselves. <laughs> they unify for a civil war, but can't get it together throughout the entire book of Judges to actually fight against the real oppressors. So uh, you can see here, and all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. They even let those guys come, right? And uh, the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And all the chief people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone to Mizpah. That Benjamin is who they're going to go against. Um, remember there's 12 tribes and Benjamin was the one in, in chapter 19 that, that allowed this atrocity. Or at least the Gibeites, uh, a, a clan of the tribe of Benjamin. And it says the people of Israel said, tell us how did this evil happen? Well, here's the Levite 
who allowed it to happen, who, who, who did it. So he, he gives his version. It's a cleaned up, makes him look better version, verse 4. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered, uh, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin. I am my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me uh, and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. They violated my concubine, and she's dead. You didn't leave, you forgot the part about how you gave her over to her destruction. Um, so I took a hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they've committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel. What he's trying to do here is just saying, get the, the Benjamites, specifically those in Gibeah, did this terrible thing. All of Israel, let's go get them, right? Everybody, come on, come on, get unified and get real mad at this so that we can go kill them. And that's what happens. Uh, and so you can see that everybody becomes unified, which is very tragic. Um, and this hasn't happened like since chapter three where everybody is gonna come together. Uh, they come together as one man. You can see that in verse one, verse eight, and verse 11. They really, the writer wants to really emphasize that they're all one man. Uh, but um, the sad part is that they're gonna fight against their own people. Verse eight, and all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent. None of us will return to his house. We're gonna, no one can go home until we fight this civil war, until it all happens. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. Uh, we'll go up against by lot. We'll take 10 men of 100 throughout the tribes, 100 of 1,000, 10,000 of, of uh, 1,000 of 10,000, bring provision to the people that when they come, they will pay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they've committed in Israel. So that all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. They want to make specifically that clan of Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin pay for what happened in chapter 19. Um, the sad part, of course, is that uh, it's civil war. Now, um, what we see after that, starting in 12 through 17, is if Benjamin had just said, you're right, what the people of Gibeah did was wrong. Here's those worthless fellows. They deserve the judgment. Let's not have civil war. All this would happen, wouldn't have happened. But what we see in 12 through 17 is the stubbornness of Benjamin. Instead of saying, yes, these Gibeites in our, in our tribe did wrong, here they are. All of Benjamin, including the Gibeites, Gibeites like they stubborn up and they say, we're gonna fight all of you Israel. Um, and so what we see is that happened in 12 through 17. All the tribes of Israel sent men through all, all the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin saying, what evil has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, so we can put them to death and purge all this evil from Israel. And just a side note, purging the Gibeites is not purging the evil from Israel because all of Israel is really wicked right now. <laughs> but nevertheless, here we go. Uh, that's why in number two, I say the manifestation of God's judgment on the destruction of Israel, Benjamin, parentheses, and Israel, because we're gonna see just how bad Israel is here and carrying out civil war against their own brothers and all the evil that they do uh, in chapter 21 uh, whenever they feel sorrow for it. But nevertheless, um, so we wanna get rid of those Gibeites. And the people of Benjamin came together, the cities of Gibeah, to go out of battle against Israel. So and the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities that day 26,000. Now, we know that there was 400,000 for Israel. So we think to ourselves, well, this is an easy war. Israel has 400,000. Benjamin has 26,000. You're not going to win. Well, let's see what happens. Um, among them were 700 chosen men. In verse 16, 
those inside of Benjamin, they also had like the Navy SEALs of Benjamin. They had 700 chosen men, all left-handed, who could, everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So they were like serious shots. Basically, in those days, most were right-handed. They carried shields in their left hand, which left their right hand exposed. So if I'm a left-hander and I can sling a, a thing and I can get pretty good at hitting a human head, then that right side is exposed. And so, you know, they're bringing their Navy SEALs who are all left-handed who can hit the human head on the right side with what seems to be really good accuracy, a stone at a hair and not miss. You can take those guys deer hunting. Um, verse 17, and the men of Israel, uh, a part of Benjamin mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So what we see here is this. Israel and its 11 tribes are coming against Benjamin and its one tribe, and they're totally outnumbered. Um, Benjamin knows that they're outnumbered, and they know that they're in the wrong. They know the Gibeites, what they did was wrong. So why don't they just say, you're right, here you go. Here's the Gibeites. Let's not be stubborn. Let's just make this thing in. Here's why. Tim Keller points this out. Why does the tribe not just turn over the guilty men just to face justice? One idol that is most destructive to human unity is the idol of our blood or our kindred, the attitude of my family and my country. Right or wrong, I stand for this family and country. Though common decency tells us that the men of Gibeah had violated all more standards, the Benjamites closed ranks around Gibeah and refused to allow any outsiders to find any fault within those insiders. When we put our blood or our racial ties or our community above the common good or God's law or God, what God says is wrong and right and the transcendent moral order, we make a God or an idol out of our own people. Meaning, if you can't critique uh, any group that you're a part of outside the church or even inside the church and you think that they are great and they're outside of critique, then you are making an idol out of them. <clears throat> a trite example. If I am not able to critique the Gamecocks, uh, and I'm not saying their gameplay because that was horrible last night, but if there's a player or a coach that does some totally immoral thing, but I stand up for them because they're a Gamecock and I'm a Gamecock and they can't do no wrong, that's wrong. Let's make it not so trite. If you are a Republican or a Democrat and you can't critique your own party saying, sure, they might have good things, but they certainly have bad things and you hold them up over God's law, then you are making an idol out of them. This is the same kind of thing that Benjamin's doing by saying, no, not the Gibeites. They're part of us. They're making an idol out of Benjamin rather than saying what the Gibeites did was wrong. What in chapter 19 is awful. And so what they should have done is not made, they shouldn't be stubborn. They shouldn't make an idol out of it, but instead they do. And so because of this, as he says, now we see how sins build upon itself, the callousness of the Levite, the sexual licentiousness of all the local hooligans in, the, in Gibeah. It turns into a full-blown civil war because of the lack of candor of the Levite master and the pride of the idolatry and the sin of idolatry of the Benjamites. We should not allow that to be happening within us in the church. We, we make what the Lord says as the supreme answer, and we don't hold up tribes above that. Ever, ever. So politics, your, your, your side doesn't go over what God says. Your team doesn't go over what God says. Your whatever it is that you are part of, which is fine. You, you should be a part of a thing, right? That's fine. But it should never be above the Lord. You don't hold on to that and preserve that over the Lord, ever. And if 
We should all be able to critique those tribes that we're a part of and point out the things that are wrong. And every single one of our tribes have something wrong with them because they're made up of humans that are sinful. So we always want to be able to critique them. Now, that's what's going on here. So uh, if the first part is kind of the recounting and 8 through 11 describes the unity of, of Israel all against the Benjamites and 12 through 17 describes the stubbornness of Benjamin. The rest of the chapter of chapter 20, 18 all the way down to 48 is the battles. They are the battles of what happens. There's three battles that are going to happen. First battle, Benjamin wins. Second battle, Benjamin wins. Or day one, day two at least. Third battle, day three, finally Israel wins. That's what happens. Um, But let's look at and see what happens. Um, before battle one or day one and battle two and day two, Israel goes to the Lord to try to ask. You can see it here in 18. The people of Israel, not Benjamin, arose and went up to Bethel, Bethel, Bet is house, El is short for Elohim, so it's the house of God. They go to Bethel where is the house of God and inquired of God, um, who shall go up first to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, notice they don't say, should we go? They say, we are going, who should go up first? They do that in 18 and they do that in 23. Both inquiries of the Lord, we're going, God. How should we do this? Should we, who goes first? Um, the reason why, uh, and God doesn't say in his answers, he gives an answer, who's who goes? He doesn't say, I'll be with you. That's painstakingly absent, Right? from there saying, uh, I'll be with you. And it's ominous, and it shows us, those are probably the reasons why, uh, among many, why they lose those first two battles. Now, here's the thing that we should realize about all all of Israel. They are so convinced of their victory is going to happen, and they're so convinced that their righteousness of their cause, that we need to fight Benjamin, um, that they don't ask if they should go from God, they just ask who should go. That's wrong. That's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And as a matter of fact, as we read in verse 18, um, it's, it's, a, it's a sad, tragic thing. In verse 18, it says this. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who should go up first to fight? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, y'all all are the, the ideal reader of the book of Judges. And so I know that you remember this. You remember chapter 1, verse 1, and you thought to yourself when you read that, that sounds just like the very first verse in the book of Judges. And you're right, it does. Let's look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. And you're thinking, that sounds very similar. And it is very similar. 1-1, 2018 sound very similar. There's People that we should go fight, they inquire of the Lord, who should, who should go up first? God says, Judah should go up first. But there's some subtle differences that verse 18, and I think the writer does this on purpose, to help us see from chapter 1 to chapter 20 just how tragic Israel has become. Now, if you look at chapter 1, you see that they, the people of Israel inquire of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all, all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the name of God that was given to him, and it means I am what I am, in Exodus 3.14, when God told Moses, this is who I am. But in chapter 20, verse 18, it isn't they inquire of the Lord. It says, the people of Israel went up and inquired of God. 
not the name of God that they call him, but instead, uh, it just infers for us not a closeness of relationship that they had in 1-1, but now a distance that has happened in chapter 20. So as you go through the book of Judges, we see that the people of God, not God, the people of God, have distanced themselves from God. That's the first tragedy that 2018 shows us whenever it's like 1-1, but not the same. The second tragedy is this, when it says, the people of God go and said, who shall go up and fight against the Canaanites? Well, that's different than in verse 18 where it says, the people of God, who shall go up and fight against the people of Benjamin? And 1-1, they're fighting against the pagans. And in chapter 20, they're fighting against their own people. So what we see is the decadence spread throughout the book of Judges, just the downward spiral of depravity where um, they're inquiring of the Lord to fight against the oppressors, and now they're, fi- they're inquiring of God, and they're fighting against their own people. So it's a tragedy among tragedies, as we see in chapter 20, verse 18, just how, uh, just how <clears throat> depraved the people of Israel have become. Well, you can see what's going to happen in verse 18. They're going to lose. Verse 19, uh, you should know this about Benjamin. How do they win? How is it that it's 400,000 versus 26? How do they win? Well, Benjamin was this hill country. And so whenever Israel had to fight, they could only send a tribe or two at a time. And so Benjamin, who's in these hills, are familiar with this. They didn't have to fight all of them. And so they, they win in those first couple of days. The people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped at Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. The men of Israel drew up battle lines against Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came down out of Gibeah, destroyed that day 22,000 men of Israel. But the people of it, uh, the men of Israel took courage and formed the battle line in the same place where they formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord in the evening. They, they, they're, what they're doing is, it seems to be good. They're inquiring of God. They're not asking the right questions, but at least they're, at least they're inquiring of, of God. And this time it says they inquired of the Lord. Shall we draw near to fight against our brothers? Now, this word brothers... Um, happens here in 23. It also happens in 28, and it even happens in, uh, what is that, 13. Again, just highlighting for us the tragedy that they're in civil war fighting their own brothers. Uh, the people of Benjamin, the Lord said, go up against them. So day one, we lose. Should we go back? Yes, you should. Day two, well, it is in 24 and 25. Here's what happened. So the people of Israel came, the people of Benjamin, the second day, and Benjamin went up against the Gibeon the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of Israel. Um, we're up to 40,000 people lose lost now, and all these men who drew the sword. So we stop there, and we see they've lost twice in a row. Uh, why are they losing? Well, verse 26 through 28, where we are now, are probably some of the most important verses in this section, this 19 through 21. And verse 26 through 28, as Keller says, they are, for, the, for these few verses, living as Israel should. Um, now, there's debate among people that are real smart, that write commentaries of whether this is true repentance or just half-hearted or not real repentance. But nevertheless, what we see in the text are elements of what repentance would look like, whether they're doing it or not. But they're living as Israel should in verses 26 through 28. They've lost twice. What are they going to do? Look at 26. Then all of the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. So everybody came this time And they sat there before the Lord and they fasted until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So what do they do here? They come up and everybody comes. And when everybody comes up there, all the people, they weep, they sit before the Lord, they fast and they offer peace offerings. And then after they do all of these things, if you look at the middle of 28, then finally they come and inquire of the Lord, shall we go? So after they... 
what seemingly looks like real repentance, where they weep, they sit, they fast, and offer sacrifices. Then they inquire, Lord, should we do it? Now, in my life, this, I want to be spiritual. I want to have it, but I usually invert this, right? When things aren't going my way, I inquire of God, why not? How come it's not happening for me? Instead of maybe going through the spiritual disciplines of weeping over my own sins, sitting and just being quiet for a while in the presence of the Lord and letting him, you know, pour over grace and mercy to me. And then after that, um, I should sacrifice, I should fast and sacrifice and then maybe inquire. Because I'm so hasty, you might not be like this. You're probably more awesome than me. <laughs> but, but we invert it, right? We, we do, if we're honest. We don't practice the spiritual disciplines. We just want, want, fast, fast, microwave Christianity, get it going now, rather than more, it's more of a crock pot, right? It takes a while. It takes a while for us to really think and think to ourselves what real repentance might look like. I should be sad and weep over my sin. I should sit and just be quiet and stop trying to make things happen. I should fast or practice forms of spiritual discipline where I'm before the Lord realizing that I don't need things, but Christ should be my only portion. Sacrifice, make real things, and then inquire. Now, there's debate if Israel's really repentant here, but there shouldn't be debate about this. God wants us to repent when we've sinned against him. That's not up for debate. He does. And if we are going to repent, repentance looks a lot like this, weeping, sitting, fasting, sacrificing. And so let's, let's practice those things in our life. We are going to constantly have sin in our life, and there should be an ongoing repentance. Luther says all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Now, it's not salvific repentance like you have to get saved all over again. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's calling for. But nevertheless, we should always be recognizing sin in our life and then looking to Christ, our only hope. Christ died on the cross, not for your current sins and your past sins, but all future sins. All of your sins have been paid for by Christ. Therefore, since you are forgiven of these things, praise the Lord, we have no reason to hesitate to repent of them because they're forgiven. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So repentance looks like these things. Now, there's a little parenthetical statement that means a parenthesis in verses 27. Uh, I didn't realize that until college. Parenthetical meant parenthesis. That's just a side note of my ignorance. Anyway, I went to public school in South Carolina. Uh, verse 27. So you can see this little thing here. Not to down it, but it's true. We're like 49, 50, 48, 49, 50, 40. Anyway, uh, 27. Look at this little parenthesis. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. Keep going. We read that and like, okay, what does that mean? This is a pretty amazing little parenthesis. It's not a, it's not a side note at all. It's actually telling something that's very important. You've got the 11 tribes of Israel and Benjamin. The 11 tribes of Benjamin have the Levites in there. And so when they go to Bethel, they can go to the Levites, the priests, and they actually have access to God to actually say, should we go? They have the ability to inquire of the Lord when it comes to um, fighting this battle. The Benjamites have no Levites, and they therefore have no access to God. And so it's, it's, it's helping us see the hardness of the stubbornness of, of Benjamin in 12 through 17, likely... At least one of the reasons is because they have no access to God. And it's because they have cut themselves off from God. And they have no access. And so therefore they have no ability to inquire of the Lord what we should do. Because if they had, God would say, you're guilty. 
give over the worthless fellows of Gibeah for judgment. Don't fight this civil war. But because they have no access, because they are cut off from Bethel, they've done it. They don't have the ability to inquire the Lord. But the rest of Israel does. And so here we go into 29 all the way through 48. The rest of the chapter is battle three or day three, however you want to say it, and Israel wins. Now, if you look at the, the rest of the chapter, it's divided into two sections. You can see 29 through middle of 36 is one section, and then the other side of 36 through 48 is the other section. And it's just recounting the same story. So 29 through 36 is the overview of the battle, and then 36 through 48 is kind of the details of the battle. So we're just going to look at the overview. Uh, I know you're not going to know some of these areas and where they are and where those cities are. That's okay. Just read it. We're just going to read 29 through 36. Specifically, 35 is important. And then we'll look at the very end of the chapter. So Israel sent men to ambush. Basically, they're in the hills. They're going to draw them out of the hills, and then they're going to, they're going to get them. That's how, they get, that's how they win. Instead of sending one tribe up, draw them out, destroy them. Here we go. 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah and at other times. The people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. There it is. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people, the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the others to Gibeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. That's how they win. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were set in ambush run out of their place at Mar Giba. And there came out against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men of all of Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And here we are finally, 35. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All of these were men who drew the sword. This is really sad. This is really sad. I mean, just to read the sentence, the Lord defeated Benjamin. This is God through the 11 tribes defeating one of the 12th tribe. This is a sad day in all of, all of Israel. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now, if you go to the end of the chapter, the rest of the chapter is just given the details of that same story. If you get to 46, though, here's what happens. So all who fell that day of Benjamin, 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. So all of the men died, except for, in verse 47, this little remnant, this little remnant. There you had 600 men that ran away. We don't want to be in this. We're running away to Remen or Ryman, or whatever it's called. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon for four months. They just jetted out of there. They were gone. And so what did the rest of Israel do? Instead of running after them, they turned back around, went back, and killed everybody else that was in Benjamin, men and women. And of course, like they are, they set everything on fire. <laughs> Like they always do. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, struck all of them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, and the beasts, all that they found. That means they killed everything. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire because they're all arsonists. So everybody in Benjamin is dead except for 600 men who fled to Rimen, Rimen, whatever you want to call it. That's all that's left. And we end chapter 20 and we're thinking, man, this is just a horrific thing. And this is not justice. This is not justice that Israel has carried out. It is genocide. 
It is wicked and it is evil. It flows from bitterness that they don't want to just require the one eye, but two. They are carrying out reckless civil war genocide against their own brothers. Benjamin's bitterness led to this that they had against Israel. So what can we learn from this? We can avoid bitterness. We can practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is largely granted before it's even felt, which is what um, all of Israel and Benjamin should have done. And it's only possible for us because it flows out of the costly payment of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we can forgive, even if we have a root of bitterness in our own heart, like all of these Israelites did, we can forgive others because we've been forgiven by Jesus. And none of them realized this as the people of God, that they could forgive. God had forgiven so many things of them and they weren't able to forgive each other. And so we close chapter 20 with this horrific story of civil war. Now, when we go into chapter 21, you can see the sorrow for Benjamin uh, and the tenacity of God's grace. You'll wonder, and as I would wonder, where is this tenacious grace of God? You'll see it, but only uh, towards the end. So you have verse 1 of, of chapter 21, which is a kind of a foundation verse that leads us into the rest. 21, they make this rash oath. All of the 11 tribes of Israel, they say, there's Benjamin and there's only 600 men and we do not want them to ever be Benjamin anymore. We want them to be wiped out. So since there's all men, what we're going to do of all of Israel is say, none of our daughters are ever allowed to ever, we swear at you before God, none of our daughters are ever allowed to marry the people of Benjamin. And they want us all stay Israelites, the people of Benjamin. So if they marry outside, they're not Israelites anymore. They want to be pure Israelite. And so they all say, no one ever can marry a Benjamite. Uh, ever. And so biologically, we know that means, well, there'll be no more Benjamites in one generation. So in verse 21, much like Jephthah, they make this rash vow, rash oath. You can see it. Now the men of Israel had sworn or made an oath at Mizpah, none of us shall give our daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Now, <clears throat> that's the foundation verse of chapter 21. The rest of the chapter is them wishing they hadn't made that oath and doing everything they can to try to give wives to Benjamin. Everything they can to try to give 600 wives. So it starts with this rash oath, but then the rest of chapter 21, they grieve for Benjamin. They mourn for Benjamin. They long to preserve Benjamin. They wish that they would have 12 tribes in Israel and not 11. And so all they want to do is preserve Benjamin, but they have this oath that they made. And so they've painted themselves into this ethical corner where we can't help them, but we really want to. We can't break our vow. And so they have pity on Benjamin, but no power to help them. So what do they do? Well, we're going to see three things that they do. Uh, number one, of course, like any rational person, they blame God. Verse two and three, the people came to Bethel and they sat there before evening before God and they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. Oh no, we're gonna have a tribe cut off from Israel. We don't want that. We, we want Benjamin, we love him. So what do they do? Oh God, God of Israel, why has this happened to, the, to this day? Why should there be one tribe lacking in Israel? Because you're idolaters and you decided to kill them, Israel. That's why. Or as Tim Keller says, it's easier to put God the wrong on God, rather than engage in self-reflection. So what first thing they do is blame God. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we likely will do this, maybe not as pronounced as this, but we certainly, when circumstance, circumstances aren't going our way, 
we will chalk it up to the sovereignty of God, and this is how God has painted and, and pictured my life, rather than maybe do a little bit of self-reflection and think, I've probably made some poor decisions that have brought me to this point as well. God is sovereign, okay? I believe that. God is sovereign. But nevertheless, we still make decisions that bring us to this point, largely because of our idolatry. That's the first thing that they do is blame God. Second thing they do is in verse, that's three. Verse four through 15 is the second thing that they do. Uh, They try to fix the problem themselves. Rather than go to God and say, what can we do, God? Give us thoughts, give us advice, give us, help us know. They try to fix the problem themselves. And they think of this, I air quote it, small loophole. The word small is quite clever. You don't get it yet, but you will see why. It's a small loophole in just a second. And it's clever. All right, verse four. The next day, uh, the people rose early. They built an altar and offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings. The people of Israel said, which of all these tribes did not come up with the assembly of the Lord? But they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying he shall surely be put to death. Um, so basically what happens here is in chapter 20 when they said, we're going to go fight Benjamin. Everybody's got to come help us fight Benjamin. And whoever doesn't help, we're going to kill him. And then they go fight Benjamin. Well, they come back and they're like, Wait a second, didn't anybody not help us fight Benjamin? Because if they didn't, then we can go put them all to death. That's what we can do. Uh, So they think about it and they realize that there is somebody that didn't come help us. Jabesh Gilead didn't come help us. So in verse six, and the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother who said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives who are uh, those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord, we can't give them our wives. And they said, here's what we do. Here's the small loophole. Remember, they need 600 women uh, because in 2047, the 600 men ran off to Remen. Uh, And they said, well, what one of the tribes that did not come to... Uh, to the Lord to Mizpah. And behold, no one had come to the camp of, um, from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. So they thought to themselves, well, this is a loophole. They didn't make the oath, and so we can go get some of their women uh, for, for uh, Benjamin. So uh, the reason why it's going to be small is because they're not going to get enough. So it's a small loophole. So uh, when the people mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Verse 10. So the congregant sent 12,000. This is where it gets wicked. This is where it gets wicked. So what they think to themselves is, in order to keep the tribe of Benjamin going, what we're going to do is we're going to go down to Jabesh Gilead, who didn't help us, and it's going to be okay since we promised that we would uh, bring judgment to anybody that didn't help us fight the war. They're going to go to Jabesh Gilead. They're going to kill every single person there, including children, except for any virgin women. And they're going to bring back just the virgin women and give them to Benjamin. That's just so backwards, dumb thinking. It's, I'm not allowed to say dumb, sorry. That's a, in our household. That's backwards, not smart thinking. All right, here we go. So here's where they go. So the congregation sent 12,000. That's in my house. I'm not allowed to say dumb. It's one of those, you know, Christian cuss words. John Christ. Anyway, so the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go strike the inhabitants of Jesh Gilead with the sword. So all the women and the little ones, that's just wicked. There's no reason to kill women and children, but nevertheless, they are doing what's right in their own eyes. If there is ever a, a pinpoint example of Judges 21, 25, where it says, in those days there was no king, everyone did what is right in their own eyes, this is it. 
I know what we can do to right the wrongs where we've already killed everybody and, and, and Benjamin. Let's go kill more people, including women and children, steal from them their 400 virgins that are there and give them to Benjamin so that we can have the tribe of Benjamin resolved. I mean, this is such backwards thinking. All right, so uh, go strike down the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, all the women and little ones. This is what you should do. Every male and every woman that is laying with a male devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And it's a small loophole because they're short. Net gain 400, you need 600. 200 men and Benjamin still don't have wives. So that's the first thing they do is they try to fix the, uh, they try to fix the problem themselves rather than go to God, but they still need 200 more and they only had a small loophole. They still lack 200. So what do they do? What do they do? Well, first they restate the problem in 16 through 18. The elders of the congregation, what shall we do? We need more wives because we destroyed Benjamin and there must be an inheritance for survivors of Benjamin. Uh, and they said, uh, because we promised that we wouldn't give our other wives. And then so they think to themselves, I know what we'll do. Here's the third thing they do. They exacerbate the problem even more by trying to fix the problem again by abducting and stealing women. That, that's be the answer. So they remember to themselves, uh, oh, you know what? That clan of Shiloh, they have that annual dance where they bring out their daughters and the daughters dance. So what we're going to do is Shiloh promised that they wouldn't give their daughters to Benjamin. But what we'll do is we'll just say, Shiloh, just don't give your daughters. Benjamin, just go steal about 200 of the daughters, okay? That way they don't break their vow and you can finally have your other 200. That's their big fix is, no, no, keep your oath. Don't give them. Just go steal them from Shiloh, okay? That's the answer. That's the ridiculous, ridiculous thing that they decide in order to restore Benjamin, whom they killed themselves, here it is, verse 19. So they said, Behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel and the east of the highway that goes up to Bethel and Shechem, the south of Lebanon. So they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. And if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards, snatch them, steal them, each man from his own wife and the daughters of Shiloh, and just go back to the land of Benjamin. So Benjamin, just go steal them. Oh no, you're not breaking your oath, Shiloh. They're stealing them. You're not giving them to them. And then they tell Shiloh, well, Shiloh, you could be mad or we could just kill you. So you need to let them take them. That's what happens here. And when the fathers and the brothers came out to complain, we will say, grant them graciously to us because we do not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither do you give them, or else now you'd be guilty. Basically, we, we could have killed you. We could have had a battle and we could have just taken them. So just let them come out and be quiet and let it go. This is just wicked. Absolutely wicked. And so what happens? The people of Benjamin did so. They stole the ladies from Shiloh during their dances, took their wives according to their number from the dancers they carried off, and they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. Benjamin gets 600 total ladies from Jabesh Gilead and Shiloh, and what, they build up the city, and then it keeps going. And the people of Israel departed. At that time, every man went to his own tribe family, and they went from out there to his own inheritance. And everybody just kind of went, and here closes the book. And the writer wants us to know that everything that has happened it's describing the events. He is certainly not prescribing what you should do. You shouldn't go steal women if you want a wife. Instead, he puts this last sentence to say, everything that I have written in these last closing chapters is bad. And here's how. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we have um, the people of Israel 
trample on the rights of the women of Shiloh and the rights of the, the whole family of Jabesh Gilead, Gilead. So what started in chapter 19 as a horrendous assault upon a woman, Judges 19, the concubine, is somehow solved by planning and promoting the abduction and the assault of women from both Jabesh Gilead and Shiloh. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You don't solve a problem of assault upon women by abducting and assaulting 600 women. That's what they do. And what we see, just depravity run rampant here of how uh, the people of Israel don't really care at all about women, but instead try to solve the problem by abducting and stealing women to solve a problem they created. And so uh, you can look at this and you can say to yourself, well, then how... How is it that God is showing tenacious grace here at the close of the, of the book of Judges? Well, here's how. If we take one kind of big step back and remember, Gibeah is the Genesis Sodom. And what did God do to Sodom? He killed them all. And what happened to Benjamin? What happened to Gibeah? They didn't die. There was a remnant in 2047 in Remen that was restored and eventually through horrific wrong means, none of the way that they restored them was right. But nevertheless, as we see in 21:23, Benjamin did, uh, according to their number, go to their land, get their inheritance, rebuild their towns, and live in them. Even though all the ways of restoration for Benjamin was done sinfully, God still let there be a remnant of Benjamin restored. So He displays grace and mercy that they did not deserve to Benjamin by letting them be uh, restored rather than destroyed like Sodom. And that is putting on display for us amazing mercy of God. He is far more tenacious in his grace than our depravity is. God's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity. And so what we see here is God being kind to Israel. As one commentator says, by, the, by these Israel's actions, the tribe of Benjamin was finally preserved. All the actions were wrong. But the Israelites had tackled the problem in a cocky, conceited, high-handed, sinful way. How estranged from the Lord's service Israel had finally become. How little did it live by God's light. It's a miracle that anything came out of that people. That justice was ever practiced. That the fellowship of the tribes was ever preserved. There is no other explanation for this miracle than God in his grace in Christ wished to dwell in the midst of this horrific people in spite of their sin. God's just putting on display his kindness and grace to, to them. And for us, um, showing us that he is tenacious in us as well. Because really, we live broken, wicked, terrible lives, and God's tenaciously coming after you, just like these people of Israel, keeping you, those that are the church, preserving you, and keeping you in Christ. So what are some applications we can learn from this? There's three things I want to say. Three things that we can say. One, as we're looking at 19 through 21, God's people should be distinct in the world. These particular people, God's people, were not distinct. They look just like the rest of the pagans. We should be distinct in this world. The way that we treat people, the way that we, that are made in his image, the, the way that we stand up for the right of women like they don't, the way that we shouldn't practice sin, we shouldn't like, look like the rest of the culture. Now, we don't seclude ourselves away from culture and to say, y'all can just, you know, go to hell and we don't care, we're over here. We're, we're definitely compassionate and with them, but nevertheless, we look different than the culture. We, 
We clearly should love Jesus, live righteously, and love and care for those people. So our distinction is not highbrow legalism and we don't like you. Instead, it's compassionate, winsome, loving and caring for our culture, but nevertheless, we live differently. We should, that's what one application we can make is that we should be distinct in this world as the people of God, unlike them. The next thing is God's people should be the leaders in fighting against the sin and the culture. These people are not fighting against the sin. As a matter of fact, they're the greatest practitioners is what it seems like. But we should not be that way. As the people of God, not only should we be distinct, but we should also fight against it. And when I say fight against it, I mean the same way. Not highbrow, legalistic, we're awesome and you're not. But instead, compassionate, loving, and caring towards people. Because we have the Holy Spirit and they don't. And so we should care about them and want to come alongside them and love them well. We shouldn't keep our eyes closed to the sin and we shouldn't participate in it. And that's what the people of God do. They just, oh, we don't see it. It's not happening. And it is. Or they just don't even care. Or they participate. None of that should happen to us. And lastly, I think that we can apply is this. The people of God here uh, give in to their temptations. And so therefore, we should realize as the people of God that we also can be tempted to do these things. And so we should never, ever count ourselves out of temptation to some wicked stuff, even as the people of God. Never, ever think just because we're the people of God that we are incapable of horrific sin. Now, praise be to God if he, through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, keeps us from that. But nevertheless, we should just never, ever write off that we can't be tempted to these things. We can be. Which brings us to the conclusion, which is there is clearly... In this writer's perspective, as he writes a couple hundred years later or whatever he writes, there's clearly in his mind, as people read this, there's a search for a king. There's a search for a king. The author is convinced that we need a king, but who is it? Who is this king that we need? It has to be someone. Is it David? It can't be David. It has to be somebody beyond David. Though David is a man after God's own heart, he still lives a quite sinful life. So it can't be David. Instead, we don't need that human, just human king. We need a king that's greater than David. We need someone that will come without being called. We need a king that will come without even being called because we as humans... Romans 3.11, no one does is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. So we will never call God. Therefore, we need a king that comes without being called. We need a king that we can't choose because John 15.16, we don't choose him. He chooses us. So we need a king that will come without being called. We need a king that, that we can't choose instead chooses us. We need a king that will do everything necessary for our salvation. Because, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we are incapable of contributing anything to our salvation. We need a king that doesn't just alter us some and make us moral people. Instead, we need a king, 2 Corinthians 5, that, doesn't take, that takes us from our old creation and therefore ushers us, us into a new creation. He doesn't just alter us morally. He changes us from an old creation to a new creation. We need a king that doesn't just forget sin or sweep sin under the rug. Instead, we need a king, as John 1, 9 forgives all of our sin and cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. We need a king greater than any rescuer in the judges. We need a king that's better than any of the deliverers in the judges. We, needed the, we need and they need the greatest king, the greatest rescuer, the ultimate king, and that's only Jesus. 
It's only Jesus. He comes without being called. He chooses us. He does everything necessary for our salvation. He makes us new creation and he forgives us and cleanses us, cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. They need King Jesus and we need King Jesus desperately who obeyed the Father all the way, went to the cross, took all of our, our unrighteousness and put it on himself and imputed to us all of his righteousness, defeated Satan's sin and death, rose three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is at the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for us all time, forever, and has declared us righteous, given us his spirit, and is sanctifying us and will one day glorify us and bring us into heaven forever to be his children as our king. That's who we need. And praise the Lord that he's given them to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for King Jesus. As we look at this, these last closing verses, we are absolutely like the writer, realizing that we are in search of a king, and you gave him to us. You gave us King Jesus. As Hebrews 12 said, he came, and he, with the joy set before him, endured the cross. Who looks at the cross as joy? Why would anybody think death is joyful? King Jesus does because he knows what happens on the other side of the cross, which is a redeemed people and glory to God. And so it's not a puzzling thing, the author and perfecter of our faith, to look at the joy, look at the cross as a joyous thing because he gets the glory and he saves his people. And so his joy is then therefore our joy. And so we thank you for our King Jesus who obeys you completely, God. And goes to the cross. He, Jesus, you're our only hope. Thank you for making and doing everything necessary for our salvation. Thank you for coming even when we didn't call. Thank you for choosing us as your church to be your people. Thank you for making us a new creation. Thank you for cleansing us from all of our sin. You are a great benevolent king. You are the ultimate king. And as we close the book of Judges... What's evident is everything, everything points to you as our only hope. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would repent of their sin, that they would weep bitterly, that they would sit, that they would repent, that they would fast, and they would make sacrifices. They would do the hard work of repentance and put their faith in you and come to Christ. And for those that are believers in Jesus, that their heart would swell with affection for Christ because you have literally done everything for us. That though we are like the people of the book of Judges, wayward and depraved and sin, sinful, you came for us anyway and you saved us. Amazing mercy, amazing grace. We give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.